ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Are you a reality TV junkie? Do you ever think, dang, I wish I had someone to talk to about all the trash TV that I watch? Well, look no further, garbage lover, because Reality Gaze is a podcast for you. Hello, I'm Maddie. And I'm Poodle, and we're the Reality Gaze. We talk about all your favorite unscripted shows like The Golden Bachelor, Love is Blind, and TLC's big, messy behemoth, 90 Day Fiance. And if you're driving to work, folding laundry, or just pretending to listen to your husband talk about sports, just put on the pod, and you've instantly got two gay besties spilling all the tea and reading these people for filth. So come at us, y'all. Find Reality Gaze wherever you listen to podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com Welcome to the London Review Bookshop podcast. To find out about our upcoming events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events. I thought we'd start, because um, I don't want to give the plot away, because today's the launch day, and many of you won't have read the book. And I will say just straight off, it's a fantastic book. It's a wonderful read. Um, one of the things I felt, and I was telling Deborah, it's it's an incredibly enjoyable book to read. Her writings, I always find, gives a great deal of pleasure. But as someone who writes, the sentences, the paragraphs, the chapters, the flow of the book, is remarkable and you can pick it up and I think you can read it straight through in an afternoon, four or five hours. It's amazing. It's a wonderful, wonderful story and it's amazingly well told. It's really beautiful, but there are all sorts of things in it and as you haven't read, I don't want to spoil the plot by giving things away. So do you want to start by just saying what it's about so I know how far I can go in, in my questions a bit, too, what I'm, yeah. what I'm going to ask. Yeah, so um, there's a quote by Joan Didion that I love um, in which she says, I've lost touch with one or two people I used to be. And I was thinking about that quote um, when I was creating the uh, main character, but we can discuss this, Elsa M. Anderson. So the M is, is quite important. She's a concert pianist. She's a child protege. Um, she, uh, when the book opened, she's 34. She's dyed her hair blue. Um, but something major has happened before before the book starts, which is that she's played a concert, I won't say what, um, a, a, you know, a well-known piece of piano music. And um, she's, she's played it many times before and she messes it up. So the book is really about why. So this, this happens, <coughs> this has happened before the book starts. And I had to make the decision, do I write that? Do, do, do I write her messing up um, or not? Mm-hmm. And, um, and I tried, and I kind of knew it was wrong. The book had to start with that uh, failure in her view um, uh, and, and the anxiety of it in her body. Um, so we begin in Athens, and she is at a flea market. She 
she's watching a woman by two dancing mechanical horses. And she wants those horses. But she didn't get there first. So um, I'm, I'm going to read Great. the first, um, I'm going to sort of praise it a bit. I'm going to read that moment, having missed out quite a bit. So Elsa M. Anderson is watching this woman by the two mechanical horses. And it's very important in the book uh, about how you get them to dance. So the switch is the tail, up for on and down for off. So there's a refrain in the book, uh, you know, the tail is up, the tail is down. She paused to adjust her hat, tipping it forwards over her eyes. As her fingers searched for a strand of hair tucked under her hat, she looked in my direction, not directly at me, but I sensed she knew I was there. It was 11 in the morning, but the mood she transmitted to me at that moment was dark and soft like midnight. A light shower of rain began to fall on Athens, and with it came the smell of warm, ancient stones. She bought both of the horses, and when she walked off with them, wrapped in newspaper, my startling thought at that moment was that she and I were the same person. She was me, and I was her. Perhaps she was a little more than I was. I sensed she had known I was standing nearby and she was taunting me. Well, that's that's great. The, yeah. the opening. I mean, the, the, one of the great themes of the book is this idea about the double and, and having left the concert uh, in a panic, what's, what starts to happen is a kind of restless longing in her, I think, and she starts looking about and seeing things. Actually, one of the things we could talk about, which, which, which is interesting, is um, I think in each of your books, but especially in this, every book has its own reality. And it, you create a reality in this where all sorts of things happen um, that many people might consider peculiar. I think, to me, it made great psychological sense the, the story that you're telling about her. Um, I mean, I would describe her slightly differently. I mean, the, the things, I'm not giving anything away to say she's adopted at the start. That's another major factor of the, of the character. And you feel, I mean, as, to me as a, as a psychoanalyst, I felt that her heart had been broken. And then the story of the book is a story of a woman who has reconstructed herself through her piano playing and through discipline but has reconstructed herself in such a way that no one can break her heart. She's always avoiding attachment and love. I mean, she has these relationships like to her piano teacher and to various people, but she's not going to let herself be uh, broken uh, again, her heart be broken. Um, but it gives her a kind of... Do you, do you think that's it? <laughs> but you feel, you know, there's a kind of restlessness in her that she's looking, but at the same time, uh, highly protected, so it's a fantastic character. Uh, yeah, so, so she's an old-fashioned piano virtuoso. <clears throat> she, she's, she plays the mighty 
old masters and they are her shield because she has a composition. Um, it's, I use this word composition quite a lot. You know, um, you can say, I want to change the world, or you can say, the world needs a new composition, right? So there's, there's quite yeah. strange language that um, I enjoy. So in the, in the cost of living, I call the really grim gray corridors of the narrator's uh, block of flats, the corridors of love. So, so I enjoy sort of making up this language mm. and composition is, is a word that's used a lot. Um, so her teacher, Arthur Goldstein, 80, a, a really wonderful uh, character yeah. to write. I, 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 uh, to this day, I sort of love Arthur Goldstein, find it quite hard to separate from him. <laughs> but he was also a tyrant. He was tender and a tyrant and adopted her at six. So he's a kind of father and a teacher. Mm. And now and again, he surprises her um, because she, she begins to notice towards the end of the novel that he's observed her quite paternally, but she's experienced him professionally. Right, so he says, you know, I, I, won't, I won't give that. Anytime I pause mysteriously, it's because it's a spoiler. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So, so in fact, my answer was that's absolutely right. But the shield, the, the other shield right. being, um, are also the old mighty masters right. because it will take a, life, a lifetime to learn how to play, play Bach. Right. And Arthur says to her, you're a performer, not a creator. So her hands are insured for millions of dollars, but not to play what's inside her. Right. Yeah. yeah. I mean, one of the things, I mean, again, thinking psychologically about it, I was, uh, some of the reviews have said things like that the book was very Freudian. <laughs> and I didn't see it that way. I found it very psychological. Uh, and, you know, they were pointing to things like symbols. I'm really curious mm -hmm. what you make of this, because they mm -hmm. point to things and they say, this is a symbol. And it, those things just felt very real to me uh, in the story. I thought the, psych the psychoanalytic part of the book was... Um, uh, Kit Bolas's idea of the unthought known. This is a woman who is adopted. She doesn't want to look at her adoption papers. She doesn't want to look at the story of her life. So you're getting a character who knows something about herself but doesn't want to think about it. And so she's also going through the book uh, in this kind mm. of way where she's... Which, so it seemed to me deeply psychological, but not... Um, and I was curious, what do, when people say it's symbolic and that... That, I mean, what do you make of that? Drives me mad, Doctor. <laughs> <laughs> it, it really does. Um, Why? I, I mean, I it, it is. Symbols. It, yeah. Like, um, so in my novel, The Man Who Saw Everything, right. there's a tin of pineapple. It's not a symbol. <laughs> <laughs> um, the, the French writer, Marguerite Duras, said something that um, I think about every time I write. She says, an image isn't a setting. Yeah. It has to hold everything um, 
the writer needs to know and readers need to know. So they're, they're, they're not random objects, they're not random symbols. Um, I remember uh, Hitchcock being asked about the symbolism of the birds in the birds. Right. And um, uh, I think in this interview, he, he sort of gave up and said, oh, the, the birds symbolize nature's revenge for being so careless with, with ecology, something like that. But what he was really doing was he was using the birds to kind of accelerate the emotional climate between characters. Um, and that's not quite a symbol, right? I might find them symbolic, if we're going to use that word, right. as, 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 a, as an audience now and again. I might sort of wonder, but, but it's, that's not the point of, of the birds. Um, so I have um, no ideas but in things. I don't do symbols. No. I mean, I'm curious because it goes back to the question about reality, because I think the book has its own reality and a feel to it. It's very much like a session with a patient where you know it is in the sense that people tell their story and it has a particular feel. And you notice certain things are dropped out of their story. They don't there are certain things that are missing. You once said to me too, the the um, Allen Ginsberg thing of notice what you notice. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and analysts have to do that. And they should also notice uh, what's not being noticed yeah. by the patient. Uh, and um, I felt uh, your books create a kind of a very particular sort of reality. And, and that's, you know, so important. I was wondering if you could talk about the reality of this because the yeah. idea of the double is fantastic in in it's not um and it works it works perfectly for her given her history the the kind of restless yearning for something the double that she's always seeing and looking and finding mm. uh if you've been adopted makes a lot of sense that you will have this thing that you're missing uh, yeah I, I mean i guess the question is what 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 is the double for yeah what what's it there to do um, and uh, so it's there for immense pleasure. <laughs> I've always wanted to write a female double. Um, in Gothic literature, mostly the male is double. I think Elizabeth Gaskell um, and, and, and a few others sort of also ex do have female doubles. Um, so, so at its most basic, let's say there's a split self Oh, so, if, so if you go Jekyll and Hyde, you know, yeah. the bad self and the good yeah. self, and they're going to fight to death, hell for leather, to destroy each other. That wasn't so interesting to me. Then we go on to someone like Dostoevsky's short story, The Double. Right. And you were talking about how, how do you establish um, a reality level, yeah. the reality of the book. So... What Dostoevsky does, it, it, it's very slow because he, he's straining with the unreality of it. It can't be true. We look, we look identical. He looks like he's running away from the night. Can it be true? So I decided yeah. I'm not going to do that. Yeah. I'm going to have Elsa M. Anderson perturbed by her double, interested, a little freaked out, but she would accept it. 
quite quickly. So then the other thing about a reality level is, um, and I think this is the confusion with Freudian and all of that, is, 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 is you have to um, create a reality to subvert a reality. So the surrealists knew that. You know, so if you look at Merritt Oppenheim's fur cup and saucer and teaspoon, um, it was once just a, she just bought them in a, she bought the <clears throat> real porcelain cup and saucer and teaspoon in a department store. And then she thought, oh, I'm going to cover it with the pelt of a gazelle. And it became something else. And when it was exhibited in, um, in America in the first surrealist show, a woman actually fainted when she saw that fur cup and saucer, um, which I find deeply fascinating and would quite like to write about her. <laughs> um, yes. So, I mean, the reality is fantastic. At times, the way else <laughs> of will, there'll be thought communication of yeah. um, thinking, she must be thinking this, or she's saying this to me. She um, never says she must be thinking no, this. No, she doesn't. But because, because I mean, I mean, you're right in a way. But so, if you if you like, there's a there's a main character, and she's got her double running around the book yes. as well. So I've got two main characters. Yes. But Elsa M. Anderson only meets her double three times in real life, as we say. But she hears her. She hears her as a voice. And she hears her as music. And she 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 notates. She notates the 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 mood and the words of her double. So there's a refrain. Um, if you like, sometimes the double the double is confronting. It's almost as if she knows things that Elsa doesn't know. Because what, what's the point of a double? I mean, why do we need them? There is a split cell. Yeah. Um, there is a conscious and an unconscious, if you like. Let's, let's go there. Um, but it, I think there's also this thing that if, if we, any of us, met our double, we think, do they know something that we don't know about ourselves? Or even where does mom hide the chocolates? You know, um, so the, the double comes in as a refrain. Maybe you are, maybe, maybe I'm what? Brutal. Mm. Maybe you are, maybe I'm what? Kind. Maybe you are greedy. Maybe you are running away from your history and your talent. And from men, maybe I am kind of thing. Yeah. I mean, yeah. that's linked to me to this thing of the unthought known, yeah. that the double knew things that, that Elsa didn't know about herself. But you also create a reality, too, where like the ants in Paris and the ants in London or the door opening. That the doubling. The dub yeah. things happen at two places yeah. at once in the book. And yeah. it gives a kind of uncanny feeling to the reader. Yeah. I feel as you're reading it, it gives a kind of, um, uh, you know, kind of magical feeling to the mm -hmm. story. 
the uncanny is sort of great, enjoyable to write, but it can't be uncanny, just uncanny. No. I mean, that was something that I learned as I as I was writing it. So, so I needed to kind of land uh, the double. Shall I read a little? Yeah, no, that'd be okay. great. Take, let's take a moment. Um, so, so read read how the voice of the double comes to Elsa in various ways. This is the third event that I've done for August Blue. And it's a bit like you wet your chops every time to find a way of talking about mm. the book. And um, I much prefer reading from it. Uh, where we are here is we are in Greece. We are on the island of Poros. And Elsa has left to teach our young students piano. So she's sort of on the run from her life. And she meets a, a man called Thomas, who makes films, and they become quite close. As it was my last night in Poros, we set off to swim at a beach called Love Bay at two in the morning. The bay was surrounded by a pine forest, the water still and flat like a lake. Take it, take it, I heard my double say. Take what? I undressed and left my clothes on the sand. I was not at ease with my body, not even in the darkness of night. It had been unloved, perhaps forever. <clears throat> I didn't know what to do with it when it was not in conversation with a piano or how to respond to the way Thomas gazed at the green jewel pierced through my belly button. We waded into the cool, flat water, and when we dived under, I continued the conversation with the woman who had bought the horses. My horses. Yes, she said, you have pulled the tail up. Take it. I swam over to Thomas. We moved in closer. I put my arms around his neck and my lips were on his lips. He was shivering, though it was a warm night. His desire was stronger than my own. Suddenly, his hands were all over me and his fingers inside me. It was not what I wanted. Yes, she said, but what tempest is bigger than two humans naked and kissing? You pulled up the tail and considered it, but you do not wish to make love on Love Bay. That is acceptable. I pulled away from Thomas and swam towards the pine trees. He caught up with me and tried to kiss me again. No, I said to him, I don't want to make love on Love Bay. He looked disappointed and hurt, but I reckoned it was not the worst thing that had happened to him in his life. <laughs> What do you do if there's not equal desire, or at least enough desire? You pull away, my double said. Desire is never fair. Thomas swam alone for a while, and then he caught up with me. I've changed my mind, he said. You are not kind. 
We flipped onto our backs and breathed in the smell of the pines. Why would I have sex with you to be kind? He laughed and I laughed, but we didn't mean it. And then we flipped underwater so we didn't have to speak. That's fantastic. I mean, I, I have to say, I mean, it's a perfect example of the thing I thought psychologically of when this broken-hearted woman who's reconstructed herself says her heart can't be broken. She's at this point where you think it's going to happen and it doesn't. That's also where the double appears as well and the, all the unconscious thoughts are there. And you feel that, that the kind of ambivalence about love um, is, is in her. The thing that's amazing, and, I, I, and I'm glad you read it out because I think that's so beautifully written, and it has that thing I was trying to just say to Deborah. One of the things I really admire is I always feel her writing's a bit like a marble run. You like in that passage where you it's perfectly smooth. That one sentence leads to the next, to the next, to the next. There's a kind of flow to the writing that um, I'm very envious of. But I also, <laughs> but I also, and I think many people who write will be. But also. Um, I'm just curious, how, how long does it take to write like that? I mean, that, that doesn't, I mean, that will be so, I mean, the care of it, it's, a, it's not a big book, but it flows like that, I feel, from the first sentence to the last. The first chapter is astonishing in that kind of fluidity. Mm. How long, do, I mean, just the yeah. writing and the care and the, uh, and how conscious are, are you at that point of like, I'm going to bring in the double at this point because it is uh, about, these aspects or, I mean, yeah. I, how, I, I guess I'm thinking about when you think about the story and bring it together, how much of it is worked out consciously, how much of it is unconscious in the writing, mm -hmm. how much is it edited out later at the end, you're pulling out things to just let that thing flow through. So it takes me a long time to write the first chapter, right. to begin a book. To, the beginning of any book takes me longer than anything else <laughs> uh, in the book. So um, the opening chapter is eight pages, and I think that took me about four months. Because if I don't get that right, if I don't get the tone right, if I don't, um, I, I can't write the rest of the book. Yeah. So I know some writers who sort of begin somewhere and they think, oh, I, I, I don't know how to solve that, so I'm going to push on and I'm going to go somewhere into the middle, that's fine. Um, you know, what, what, whatever works. But for myself, it's like a torment, the beginning. It's a torment and a pleasure at the same time. It's, 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 it's like to write, to spend four months writing eight pages. Um, so a lot is taken out of it. Um, I, have, I have quite detailed backstories <clears throat> for for all the personae in my novel or all the avatars or all the characters um, so that I can strip away backstory yeah. until we get to Elsa's yeah. adoption story but even that stripped away yeah. um, and that was a technique that I began to become very interested in when I was writing Swimming Home because Yosef has a backstory. He's, he's, he's born in Poland, he's Jewish, 
the Second World War, the Nazis have have, have, are in Poland, and his parents need their son to escape through the woods in Poland, where he will be he will make be helped to make mm. his way to Whitechapel. So we all know that yeah. there's a lot of research um, and a lot of information about that particular story. So they, his parents take him to the woods, and his father says to him, he's four, you can never come home. You can never come home. And those words are usually said in anger. Yeah. But they said with love. So he has a problem with love, Jacob. Mm. The, the backstory for Jacob is like a whole file. It's like, it's like 40 pages, and there are 10 lines in Swimming Home. So to get to those 10 lines, yes. okay. um, that, that's sort of yeah. how I like to do it. For um, Elsa, oh, we have the spoiler thing. It's a, it's a little bit like that for, for, for <laughs> Elsa. But I think we can say that um, that the double, as well as the pleasure of the double, it's, it, was, it was so elating to write the double, you know. Um, but Elsa is, Elsa is also looking for her mother. So the, I, I don't hammer this at all, but, but, she, but she's looking to see yes. who, 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 she, who might look a bit like her. And when she dyes her hair blue, um, that's sort of like a break from all of that. You know, she's a natural blue kind of thing. So it, it means it, 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 there are many other reasons, but that's important yeah. because um, she now has this blue hair. And she says, she, she says I, I, I could hear my mother gasp like a separation mm. from that story yeah. she wants to she doesn't want to read the documents because it's the same old same old story in her view um, and she's encouraged by her teacher to make something of it to make something new of it if you like to make another composition from the old composition um, and then and then there's sort of language as a composition. So, so girls and women of my generation, if you, if you, could, you could say that there was a sort of composition of insults, very basic. We were sluts, fat, mental, queer, bitches. You know, you, you can, you can, you can, we can all add to this, but that was the same old, that was the composition, right? Um, it's so hard to make a new composition. Not that we really want like more interesting words. Same with um, the language used to describe migrants. I think David Cameron found something new when he said swarm, <laughs> right? That's, uh, we don't really want that, but you could say, um, so how hard is it to make a new language? How hard is it to make a new composition? That interests me a lot. Um, and it interests Elsa yeah. too. 
which is why Isadora Duncan features in the book. Keeps coming, yes. Because she made a new language. She 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 broke out of the conventions of um, <laughs> of of ballet, and she made this really strange language that's quite easy to mock if you watch it on YouTube, so upwards and outwards and, and all the rest of it. But Elsa is fascinated by it too. I don't have a lot of time. I wanted to ask just a couple things too that we were talking about just on other occasions. But one was, of course, COVID, the pandemic, when you wrote it. Mm. We were talking about Wolf too and Mrs. Mm. Dalloway following the Spanish flu um, and the idea of writing which I also think the story of Septimus, in a way, with Mrs. Dunn, that there's things going on. Which... Well, they're sort of doppelgangers, aren't yes, they? Yes, there are. Wolf and, well, Clarissa. Yes. And, and Warren Smith. Yeah. yeah. And the, just thinking, you know, in what ways did COVID affect? Because it's so nice, everyone's here, here we are gathered, something we couldn't have done, you know, and yeah. when you were writing it. <laughs> and I wondered if it had an effect on the book, uh, if it was oh, in... Oh, my goodness, yeah. Because uh, occasionally they're wearing masks and things, too, because mm. it is... Uh, during... So the book is set in the dying days of the pandemic, but I was writing it during the w various waves of virus, the various <clears throat> wave, rewriting it, various ways, waves of war and of floods and droughts and all the rest of it. In fact, I'm going to read a little bit yeah. about that. Um, because my books are much cleverer than I am. So um, Elsa and her double are sitting side by side like this. We agreed that whatever happened next in the world, <clears throat> we would still rub conditioner into our hair after we washed it and comb it through to the ends. We would soften our lips with rose, strawberry, and cherry-scented balm. And though we would be interested to see a wolf perched on a lonely mountain, we liked our household animals to betray their savage nature and live with us in our reality, which was not theirs. They would lie in our laps and let us stroke them through waves of virus, wars, drought and floods, and we would try not to transmit our fear to them. So, so, so the doppelgangers are transmitting thoughts and feelings all the time. Um, and, um, and I suppose, I suppose the question is, is Elsa's question, um, is she more knowing? Is she is she knowing? Am I foolish? Is she sane? Am I insane? Is she? Um, is she? How much more is she than I am? Um, and and that's a mm. that that's a conversation that that sort of transmitting in in the way that a virus transmits. Right. I think a book transmits, and I think uh, to readers one way or another. Um, the unconscious transmits to the writer the whole um, sort of catastrophe of war and virus together is 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 something that we 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 all living through, and it was something that 
uh, Virginia Woolf, of course, lived through because what was called the Spanish flu, the global influenza pandemic, and the ending oh, cool. of the First World War sort of happened together. I think Mrs. Dalloway sat in 1923. So it's really very, it's a, it's a sort of perfect decision to, given those circumstances, to start Mrs. Dalloway with a woman buying flowers. How clever is that? Exactly. Not sure we have questions. A, we have a, we could we, yeah we could go to questions. I, I, I'm going to ask one more. I mean a, a, maybe a Wolfian sort of question. In um, Room of One's Own, she says um, it's that wonderful thing about we read books singly, um, but uh, books are continue other books that they're a continuation of other books. And I was wondering what are the books that you felt, you know, were in you when you were writing this, or you might have been responding mm. to things that you were thinking about, clearly things like doubling, stories mm. that had doubles in them. Um, sure. I was thinking about um, a story called The Shadow by Hans Christian Andersen, right. in which the shadow usurps the original. Right. Um, so, so my shadow... Uh, becomes more and more confident and eventually offers me a job. Um, that, that's, that's the sort of mood of, of the Anderson story. It's a wonder, really wonderful story, quite, quite sinister and quite Freudian yeah. um, <laughs> and, um, and all the rest of it, but sort of magical as well, amusing. It was mostly art, quite a lot of film. Mm. Um, I like the way David Lynch uses the doppelganger, but it wouldn't kind of work for me for a whole novel. Um, so all my work is about chasing coherence and incoherence, giving space to incoherence and chasing coherence, letting them coexist. Mm -hmm. And of course, if we do that, we don't really need doubles. Yeah. Um, but if we feel so incoherent and so porous, probably do yeah. they're quite helpful and i hope i have a double somewhere in europe doing this event <laughs> right now so i say what shall i say deborah <laughs> <laughs> it's lunchtime at tim hortons and we're serving up a special deal just for you our new 5.99 lunch deal includes your choice of any lunch sandwich and a side of crunchy kettle chips because what's lunch without a little crunch and the sandwich choice is all yours. Like a ham and Swiss, Chipotle chicken wrap, BLT, and more. Made to order just the way you like it. Tim Horton's new lunch deal. Simple, delicious, and just $5.99. Now that's a good deal. Only at your neighborhood Tim's. U.S. only. Price and participation vary. Terms apply. Should we take questions? Are there? Um, if you have a question, just lift your hand. Yes. Hi. So I've been lucky enough to read the book already and it's absolutely wonderful. Um, I was interested in um, Elsa being a pianist. How um, obvious was that to you? Um, I could see why because of the relationship with Arthur. With Arthur. But did you consider her to be a, a, another sort of musician at any point? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, no, it was always going to be the piano, and it was something to do with with the feeling of the keys on the on the fingers, um, and 
And really, to be honest, because I had listened to so much classical music, particularly during uh, uh, piano solos, uh, particularly through the pandemic, because I didn't want music with words. So I'm a big fan of Leonard Cohen. I never played him once during the pandemic because I just didn't want words. We were on our news feeds all the time, you know. Oh, looking for a narrative in a way, like, you know, is the world going to end on Wednesday or is it going to be Friday? <laughs> and um, and so, so, so that music, I, I just lay on the floor and listen to it. A lot of Ravi Shankar and always um, Philip Glass too. Um, Which you have your characters listening to. They're always listening to Philip Glass. Yeah, so the, and, they are. and John Cage and... Uh, Even Sophia, I realize, yeah. in um, Hot Milk, she's listening to Philip Glass when Ingrid appears on a horse. Horses are always in my books as well. I think we just have to kind of accept it. And, <laughs> um, yeah. Is there another question? Others? It's another process question. I, I found for me the whole book hung wonderfully around a single image, which was the image, I don't think it's giving anything away to say it's the image of a piano being taken across a field in Suffolk by horses. Um, <laughs> and I wondered where in the process that came from, whether that was a kind of originary image or whether it sort of came out of out of the process. Well. Yeah, so, um, so the mechanical dancing horses are going to be part of, 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 of something being pulled towards her. So, so the image isn't a setting, you know, that the object isn't a setting. It's there to, it's there <laughs> to do something all through the book. Um, so I don't really want to talk about that particular moment. Um, but, 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 but yes, yeah, so, so, so in my process, <coughs> I'm going to work out when that when she can access how what what you know when how how and when is she going to access whatever it is the mechanical horses mean to her so we're going to go we'll start off in some pancreas station mm. um a woman gives her sunflowers she's playing the old out of tune pianos and in the shopping concourse and those flowers take her back to to Suffolk, to a kind of forbidden pasture of her childhood. So I'm always looking for those, and sometimes they just appear. They just sort of grow. I don't plot them. I may plot some of them, but it would be so boring to write if you plotted everything. Um, so the unconscious of the book is really important. Uh, and what does that actually mean? I like Ballard's quote that he's sort of looking for the for the hidden wiring in the fuse box, and the book is the fuse. You know, this is the fuse box, and the, all all the what you call the process. Um, and another writer might say the storytelling. Some of it, some of it's crossed, some of it isn't. Some of it is revealed to me. Because my books aren't really about feeling things. They're about not being able to feel things. Yeah. I mean, that's what makes her such a, I think, a great character is, you know, 
the the restless yearning where she wants something but she can't get to it and the, mm. that kind of push and pull in her the ambivalence of wanting love but not being able to properly mm. you know open her heart is there another question i'm just wondering if your if your living autobiography trilogy had any bearing on deciding to write a novel about um a doppelganger uh, whether whether you know in your trilogy you kind of thought oh I wish my life was more like it is in the book <laughs> or vice versa yes that's a great question um no <laughs> sometimes a no is just a no uh, I think place always has a surreal and dreamlike hold in in your novels and I was just wondering is that your intention? I think even in your living autobiography, it's so important. Each book starts with a very defining moment in a certain mm. place. And yeah, just wondering, is that your intention for it to be something glimmering and, and shining almost? <laughs> well, I hope the prose is glimmering and shining. Um, because it's the prose that has to make the place kind of thing. So... Um, so it's not just the place. It's sort of creating an atmosphere. It's a bit like Hitchcock, sort of using the birds to accelerate the emotions um, or accelerate the atmosphere in various scenes in, in the birds. But place is very important to me and um, and has a part to... It's, it's almost like a character in itself in all my books. So in Hot Milk, you know, it's such a pleasure to write about. I've always wanted to write about the way cicadas in the trees of a particular part of southern Spain make the tree vibrate almost imperceptibly. I mean, who wants to write about that? But for some reason I do, because they are the birds. They're, they're my equivalent. Is there something sort of vibrating? in Sophia, in hot milk. So that's why I noticed the cicadas, you know. But then it's just great to kind of notice, notice that tree anyway. So I, I, watch, I watch things for hours. I do like staring. I think we have time for one more question. Yeah. yeah. Deborah, um, in your books, I've always noticed an extraordinary uh, details of, of every kind and we've talked about a lot tonight and I just had this idea that you've got pages and books and piles <laughs> of images and characters and that when you talk about your avatars etc for this particular book are there like a sort of a whole gang millions of them all dotted around your imagination that you can sort of pull on or is it only mm. each for the books that you're doing Right. Um, not really. I mean, we were, we were talking earlier about this, this Allen Ginsberg quote. Um, I often tell students who, when I, when I teach writing, uh, such a simple note, notice what you notice. Because, uh, you know, we, we spend quite a lot of time trying not to notice what we notice. It's quite, it's a very subtle note. Notice what you notice. So what sticks? 
is what you notice. So, so the, the, the sort of characters in this book are people I'm interested in, psychologies I'm interested in, human problems I'm interested in, a tone I'm interested in, um, and, um, and who I can bear to sort of spend the time it takes in the slog of writing a novel. You know, I want good company. And I want you to have good company too. And I want them to, they're, they're characters that I kill off for that, for that reason. Um, <laughs> I don't really have minor characters anymore in that sort of Hollywood <laughs> sense. You're a major character. I mean, I know that's a trope in my living autobiography. In fiction, I don't really think of, think I have minor characters. I have characters who do more, whose purpose is, is, is that to sort of do more in the book. But to myself, they're not, they're, they're not minor, even if it's, um, yeah, which, which is interesting to me, in fact. I can't quite explain that. Um, they're all, yeah. And I would quite like the only in the sense that you've you, you've mentioned, you know, do I have lots of characters? I would quite like to write about that woman who fainted at the sight of Merritt Oppenheim's teacup. I think she'd be fascinating. And she's on my list. Thank you. Thank you so much. That was absolutely marvellous. Thanks for listening. To find out more about London Review Bookshop events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hi, I'm Jesse Crookshank. Jesse Crookshank. I host the number one comedy podcast called Phone a Friend. Girl. Let's phone a friend. Not only do I break down the biggest stories in pop culture with guests like Dan Levy and members of InSync, I do it with my own personal boy band singing jingles throughout because it's my show. It's your show, girl. New episodes of Phone a Friend. Yeah. Drop Thursdays wherever you get your podcasts. So work it, girl. Yeah, work it. Okay, that's enough. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com.